Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good good day. Good afternoon to everyone. Uh, Today, we're going to cover three topics in which uh, the NLRB has recently issued decisions that uh, overruled precedent and created a new or modified legal standard. Uh, Those are one, um, issues involving non-disclosure and non-disparagement clauses uh, in severance or settlement agreements. Uh, Two, the lawfulness of various types of employee handbook rules. And then three, the board's new standard for remedial bargaining orders and responding to a union's request uh, for recognition. So let's start with introducing the panelists. Uh, Again, my name is Alex Robertson. I'm an attorney at Pyle Rome, Ehrenberg in Boston. I've been here since 2020. And before that, I was with the NLRB in its Baltimore office for more than five years. And the bulk of my practice is representing unions, including before the NLRB. We have Emily Goldman. Uh, She is a supervisory attorney for the NLRB's uh, Region 1 field office in Boston. She's had that title since since last year. And before that, she was a field attorney in the same office since 1999. Uh, We have Allison Anderson. She's a partner with Foley Hoag uh, here in Boston and is the co-chair of its labor employment group. Um, She has a wide-ranging employment practice that also includes representing employers and their dealings with unions and before the NLRB. And then uh, we have Paige McKissick. She is a partner at Siegel Reutemann, also here in Boston, where she has been since 2013. Uh, She represents unions in all aspects of their work. She represents uh, Taft-Hartley benefit funds and also does some plaintiff-side employment litigation. Uh, So let's start with the first topic of non-disclosure and non-disparagement provisions in um, severance and settlement agreements. And I will give it to Emily Goldman to start off. Emily, you're on mute. Off to a great start, thank you. Um, I'm gonna be talking Uh, initially about the McLaren-McComb decision that the board issued in February of this year. Um, Essentially, what I'm going to be talking about the board's return to its pre-2020 standard making overly broad non-disclosure and confidentiality clauses in severance agreements unlawful. So the holding of the McLaren-McComb case was that an employer's mere proffer of a severance agreement that contains language requiring employees to waive Section 7 rights violates Section 81 of the Act. McLaren McComb, excuse me, overruled Baylor University Medical Center and another case called IGT, which were both 2020 decisions. And just for some historical context, because I think it's helpful in understanding this new board decision. Um, In each of those cases, Baylor and IGT, the board overruled longstanding board precedent, holding that the mere proffer of an agreement containing language that required an employee to waive, to agree to waive certain Section 7 rights did not in and of itself violate the act. So the board stopped looking at the language of the challenged provisions in severance agreements and instead focused on the circumstances under which the agreement was presented to employees. And found that absent of of finding that the employer had fired or otherwise discriminated against the recipient of the agreement and that the employer harbored animus toward employees section seven activity, the employer's mere proffer of an agreement containing language restricting restricting uh, employee section seven rights was not found to violate section 8A1 of the act. So in McLaren-McComb, the board explicitly rejected those requirements. The facts of McLaren were that the employer had permanently furloughed 11 employees and offered them a severance agreement. And that agreement had four problematic provisions. One was a provision that prohibited employees from disclosing the terms of the agreement to a third party other than their spouse or professional, certain professional tax advisors, uh, or unless they were legally compelled to do so by a court or administrative agency. 
Another problematic provision prohibited employees from disclosing information, knowledge, or materials of a confidential, privileged, or proprietary nature, which the employee had knowledge of or involvement with by virtue of or by reason of their employment. Um, a third provision required employees to agree not to make statements to the employer's employees or to the general public that could disparage or harm the employer's image or the image of its parent and affiliated entities and their officers, directors, employees, agents, and representatives. And finally, um, there was language in the in the McLaren McComb agreement that subjected employees to substantial monetary and injunctive uh, sanctions, including actual damages, costs, and attorney's fees if they breached the non-disparagement or confidentiality prescriptions. So the confidentiality provision would have prohibited employees from disclosing even the existence of the unlawful provision in the agreement, which would we would which would reasonably tend to coerce employees from filing ULP charges or helping in a board investigation into the employer's use of the agreement. The non-disclosure provision was found to be overly broad in part because it was not limited to matters having to do with the employee's past employment with the employer. And it would have restricted employees right under the act to, for example, pub publicize labor disputes as long as the statements they made were not so disloyal, reckless, or maliciously untrue as to lose the act's protection. And um, before Baylor, when presented with an allegation that a severance agreement violated Section 8A1, longstanding board president focused on the language of the agreement to determine if the proffer of the agreement could chill employees' Section 7 rights. Um, and the presence of unlawful conduct by an employer was not a prerequisite to a finding that the language violated the act. Um, in summary, the board focused on whether the agreement on its face restricted Section 7 rights. And we're pretty much back to that standard at this point after McLaren-McComb. I can talk a little bit more later about non-compete agreements if we have time. Okay. Um, thank you, Emily. That was a great summary of that case. And I guess before we go into questions for some of the other panelists, I know there's a what's what we refer to as a GC memorandum on this topic um, from the general counsel of the agency. It's GC 2305, and that's from March 22 of this year. And could you just explain really quickly for people watching this? what a GC memo is and kind of how that would be different from a board decision? Sure, uh, a GC memo provides guidance. It can provide guidance after, in the aftermath of a board decision, or it can set forth the general counsel's position on a particular issue in anticipation of a board decision or in hopes that the board will issue a decision that is consistent with how the general counsel uh, sees the law. And our current general counsel has been issuing uh, quite a few uh, memos setting forth her position on a variety of issues um, to give guidance to um, parties and attorneys about how she sees certain issues. Yeah, and I would definitely commend people to, uh, it to people to check it out because it's actually in a question and answer format, so which is not always the case. So it's rather uh, user friendly compared to the norm. Um, so, Paige, I, I want to start with you on this. Um, as Emily explained, you know, under the Baylor decision, um, these types of agreements didn't necessarily weren't necessarily considered to implicate the act because they applied to former employees. I mean, implicit in a severance agreement is they're not there anymore. Um, why do rights under the National Labor Relations Act extend to former employees as well as current employees um, under this new decision? Sure. Um, you know, I think this is a point. Uh, it's a good question. It's not necessarily intuitive, given that, you know, we think of the National Labor Relations Act as governing primarily um, employees of employers and, and the unions that represent those employees. Um, but what the board said essentially is Section 2.3, which defines employee under the act is broader than that. Um, the language says that the act um, covers, you know, any employee not limited to the employees of a particular employer um, and also extends to individuals whose work um, 
has ceased uh, in connection with some kind of labor dispute. Uh, so it, it also covers people who are no longer employed by employers. Um, and the act, like Section 2.3, the definition of employee, also defines labor dispute quite broadly. Um, so because of that, uh, the board said, you know, in accordance with precedent going back quite a ways, I don't know, back to the 70s or, or earlier, um, that former employees are covered. Um, and on top of that, uh, sort of in keeping with the theme of broadly interpreting the act, um, the board uh, highlighted that employees are not protected merely for activity within the scope of their immediate employment relationship, um, but also for activity that's, you know, uh, achieved through other channels, right? Through um, the public, through appeals to the media. Um, and there's a laundry list in the board decision of, of the ways in which former employees might uh, or current employees might uh, use those other channels to uh, engage in Section 7 activity. All right. Um, Allison, I know you deal, you represent employers that are already union, that are facing union drives, and then ones that are don't have any kind of union on the scene. Um, when you're looking at um, these types of agreements or drafting them, um, what were you looking at under the former Baylor standard? I guess, how much were you looking out for NLRA issues in this type of agreement under Baylor? And how is that changing now? Um, because now it would apply really to every severance agreement. It's a good question, Alex. And I think as your management side colleague, maybe you're setting me up for uh, <laughs> some failure on this first question. Because, you know, admittedly, like you said, I work in both the manage or in the union and non-union space and in the non-union environment, even though we all know that Section 7 applies to all workers, whether unionized or not. Um, I'd say historically, it was the case for me that if I were reviewing severance agreements in a non-union environment, that we were not paying close attention to ideas about potential infringement on Section 7 rights as drafted in these agreements. Like it wasn't part of the discussion for the most part, if I'm, if I'm being frank with the group here. Um, and I would say that there has been a market shift from the McLaren-McComb decision. Um not in necessarily the ch changes to the terms of the agreements themselves, but I would say probably to your point, Alex, paying attention to the issue. So whereas before we might have had a broader non-disparagement provision or a broader confidentiality provision, you know, thinking about potential conflicts with former employees as they moved on to their next job and trying to, you know, protect various interests of the employer, and now we're thinking about ways of tailoring that for particular situations where we might not have as closely before um, those, those two provisions in particular. So I, I think agreements are still being signed and parties are still agreeing to the terms, but they're just being refined a little bit more carefully for those situations, um, especially for employers that have no familiarity with the union environment. I would just add to that, you know, I, I've sort of noticed um, since the decision was issued that I'm seeing less non-disparagement clauses in draft agreements from employers. Um, I would expect, you know, it's I think it's context specific, right? Well, there, there could certainly be cases, there are cases where non-disparagement is very important given the facts. Um, but I think in terms of boilerplate language in, in in an agreement i'm seeing less non-disparagement still seeing confidentiality clauses although with disclaimers um, or some attempt at narrow tailoring i also think page i'll just build on that real quickly the disparagement piece i think you know many of my clients the concern is less about disparagement of management or individual people and oftentimes disparagement clauses were written so broadly as to capture that and really the concern is about disparagement to the business or its products and services and the general counsel memorandum has indicated that that continues to be a lawful um, area where you can include non-disparagement so she hasn't rendered all of it improper she's just asked us to be more careful and refined and i think the primary interest most businesses have, which is protecting the thing, the product and service they sell continues to be a thing that can be protected in these agreements. 
I think that's a great intro into my next set of questions, uh, which is really about the specifics of these. It's clear that under this new standard now, really all severance agreements are going to fall under the standard and could potentially, if they contain an unlawful provision, could be found to constitute an unfair labor practice. But I guess the question is, how would that be um, in practice? And so, Paige, I wanted to start with you. You mentioned non-disparagement um, provisions and severance agreements. Could you just explain why those, I think they have a common sense, especially for employers, uh, as to why they would want them, but it's maybe they might not necessarily know uh, why that would be unlawful under the act in the first place. Um, and it makes maybe something to say really quick before you say that is we've been using the expression section seven rights. And, and for anybody who's not familiar with that term, that refers to a, a provision of the National Labor Relations Act it's essentially the employee rights provision, and it contains several clauses, most of which involve a union. Uh, but it does not just apply in the union context. It also protects employees in their concerted activity for the purpose of mutual aid or protection, which is quite broad. So with that, Paige, could you tell us why non-disparagement um, clauses can be unlawful? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, I guess if you're just if we're just talking about viewing the act as a whole, um, I think silencing employees is is kind of antithetical um, to the purpose of the statute, right? Um, you know, it as you mentioned, Alex. You know, it grants employees the protected right to talk to their coworkers about terms and conditions of employment, as well as you know, associate and form, uh, band together, form a union. All of those sort of rights uh, suggest, you know, um, activity by more than one person, right? So, which entails some some degree of communication. Um, concertedness is an important aspect of the act, right? You need, we won't get into the whole definition of what concertedness is because that's also a developing area, but um, you need a speaker and a listener. You need more than one person. So the idea of these clauses, I think just generally speaking, silencing employees, sort of separating them is sort of antithetical to the concept of the act. Um, and Section 7 rights include the right to talk to your coworkers or the media or other employees about, um, you know, not so great things about your employer, right? Um, I think if you're at the point where you're being presented a severance agreement, chances are that things did not go so well um, at your job, and then you might have some negative things to say. And that kind of activity would be protected. Um, there is a line, right, in which protected activity can become unprotected. Um, but disparaging your managers or uh, the business for how you were treated, that is ordinarily protected. So that's how sort of taking a broader view of, of why um, some of the reasoning behind the board finding these broad boilerplate non-disparagement clauses um, to be unlawful. Okay. Yeah, and I think Emily actually referenced the under, like you said, we don't want to get too into the details of what concerted activity is because that could be an hours long discussion. But I think Emily referenced the standard in that area that relates to disparagement, which is that type of speech only loses the protection of the act if it's maliciously untrue or disloyal. Um, and there's some case law about that. So it's a pretty high bar. Um, Allison, putting it back to you, could you tell us about confidentiality um, restrictions in severance agreements? And I guess not to ask you a compound question, but in kind of two respects, like I guess to start with, why why do those run afoul of the act um, sometimes? And are there ways that they can be drafted um, where they are lawful, but still protect the employer's interest in confidentiality, such as with trade secrets? So I think the the first part of the question about why does the general counsel treat certain aspects of it improper under the act? Um, I think this goes hand in hand with what Paige was just describing, which is if employees are to have the right to engage in protected concerted activity, they need to be able to talk about terms and conditions of employment. I think the thing that's probably most familiar to all of us, whether we work in the union or non-union space, is around like pay secrecy type subjects, which is that you can't prohibit employees from talking about their wages. 
um, I think sort of related to this is the same idea of of telling employees that all aspects of an agreement, um, regardless of the term, must be kept confidential, could run afoul of this idea that there are subjects that they are legally permitted to talk about. Um, I'd say in practice, I struggle with this piece a little bit because, you know, in the severance agreements that I've seen for the most part, there are not typically subjects that relate to terms and conditions of employment embedded in the body of the agreement. And principally, these agreements are around keeping the agreement itself confidential, not things that happened at work confidential. Um, That said, to answer your question, um, General Counsel Abruzzo has directed that there are still certain subjects that permissibly can be kept um, confidential. So one of them is trade secret and other business, you know, secret business information, which again, if you were ranking an employer's top priorities, you know, it's to prevent disparagement of the products and services they sell and to keep confidential the thing that they invest the most time and money in. And so it's a relief to the management bar for sure to see a direction by, by Jennifer Bruzzo that that continues to be permissible because I think it's a top priority for businesses. She drops a footnote in the memorandum to indicate that it is also permissible to keep the actual dollar amount being exchanged in the severance agreement um, as confidential. And I'd say that that's probably the second thing that businesses care a lot about is keeping that negotiation in terms of the dollar amount exchanged between the employer and the employee for, you know, in order to get the release, those two things are really top priority. So those continue to be lawful. And I'd say the effect of that is that, like I said, severance agreements continue to be signed. And I think both sides feel like they can be drafted in a way that complies with the direction of the new law. And just to piggyback off that really quick, uh, which is or I guess a kind of a clarifying statement or question is I think in the past it was typically even on, before Baylor and IGT under going two or three boards ago that it typically was considered lawful to have the terms of the agreement be confidential generally not just the financial terms so it looks like that is a significant change and that's actually in note 48 of the decision on page 9 uh, where a case called S. Friedman and Sons um, was overruled. So it's kind of an interesting little nuance where maybe um, the board is staking out territory that no board uh, ever has previously. Um, Paige, uh, based on some of the decisions, some of the guidance from the general counsel, would it be lawful for an employer? Many of these agreements are already out there because the, uh, they predate this decision. Uh, would it be lawful for an employer to attempt to enforce in court um, an agreement that would be unlawful now under the McLaren-McComb standard? Um, No, I don't think it would. Um, I think the board's decision is pretty clear that um, it violates Section 8A1, um, not just to proffer the agreement, but also to maintain and to enforce it. So I think taking an enforcement action under what is otherwise an unlawful um, clause would would give rise to a charge. Um, the other thing that was pointed out in, I believe, the GC memo was um, that although you know the proffer of the agreement may no longer be actionable, for example, if it was um, if the agreement was offered and signed outside of the statute of limitations at this point, more than six months before um, that there you could still file a charge over the maintenance of the agreement in other words it's sort of like a continuing violation of the act to have it out there um there's this interesting suggestion by the gc that employers should um be proactive in attempting to remedy that potential violation by sending out notices to employees who've signed or individuals who've signed these kinds of clauses which are now unlawful um advising them, you know, for example, that the, the, that clause of the agreement is null and void and that the employer is not going to take any action to enforce it. Um, I think it's probably unlikely that employers, you know, I defer to Allison on her view on this, but I think it's unlikely probably that employers are going to do that um, because I think it would maybe invite litigation that otherwise isn't likely to happen, um, quite frankly. But um, I don't know. It's it's it was a suggestion that the GC made, and it and it also hints at what kind of um, 
settlement regions might be seeking on these, you know, settlement terms and and um, when these charges are filed. It's definitely some interesting implications for all types of workplaces, and I think especially. Um, in cases involving sexual harassment and, and sexual assault, a very, very important part of that area. So I guess to keep this moving, Emily, let's, uh, Allison, I have a question for you about disclaimers, but I think I'm gonna circle back because that also applies to our next topic. Um, Emily, can you take us away on uh, handbook and other rules? Sure. Uh, so the next topic deals with a case called Stericycle which was issued on August 2nd of this year and returned to a modified Lutheran Heritage Village Livonia standard uh, for analyzing work rules. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that decision and about the historical context, because again, I think the historical context informs the decision. Um, so in the Stericycle decision, the board issued uh, a new, the board adopted a new legal standard for determining whether an employer's work rules, which do not expressly restrict Section 7 activity, are unlawful under Section 81 of the Act. So before I talk about that new legal standard, I want to first talk about Lutheran Heritage, which was a 2004 case, uh, which for many years uh, was the governing standard for evaluating rules cases. Under Lutheran Heritage, the relevant inquiry was whether a rule specifically, excuse me, explicitly restricted Section 7 activity, and if it did not, it could be found to violate Section 8A1 if it satisfied any of the following conditions. So the first condition was that employees would reasonably construe the language of the rule to prohibit Section 7 activity. The second one was that the rule was promulgated in response to union activity or protected activity. And the third one, the third condition would, was that it was applied for the purpose of restricting employees' exercise of their Section 7 rights. So 12 years later, in 2016, the board issued, uh, decided a case called William Beaumont Hospital. And that case, interestingly, is now perhaps better known for its dissent than its majority opinion. The majority found a hospital rule prohibiting conduct that impedes harmonious interactions and relationships to be unlawful. Uh, found that, I'm sorry, found that rule to be unlawful. And it was found to be unlawful on the grounds that an employee would reasonably understand its prohibitions to encompass Section 7 activity. The majority also found a rule prohibiting negative or disparaging comments to be unlawful because it would reasonably be construed to prohibit protected expressions of concern about working conditions. Now, the dissent in Beaumont was um, notable because it was written by then board member and future board chairman, Ms. Gamara, who argued that the Lutheran Heritage Standard single-mindedly considered NLRA protected rights without taking into account legitimate employer justifications for particular rules or policies. So the next year in 2017, when Ms. Kimara became board chairman, the board issued its decision in Boeing, which overruled Lutheran Heritage and incorporated his dissent from the William Beaumont case into the majority opinion. In Boeing, the board held that when evaluating the lawfulness of a facially neutral work rule, it would balance the nature and extent of the potential impact of the rule on NLRA rights against legitimate, legitimate employer justifications associated with the rules. The rule. So the Boeing majority divided work rules into three categories. The first one, and I'm going to just touch on this briefly because I know our time is limited. Um, category one rules were rules that were always lawful to maintain. So those were rules that in the board's view did not interfere with Section 7 rights and where the adverse impact on Section 7 rights were outweighed by employer justifications associated with the rules. So that included, among others, uh, no camera rules and rules requiring employees to abide by basic standards of civility like those that were at issue in the Beaumont case. Category two cases were rules that were sometimes lawful to maintain, and those cases, the board said, required a case-by-case -case scrutiny. And then category three cases were rules that were always unlawful to maintain, which were rules 
that were that given their impact on protected activity could never be justified by an employer. In 2019, uh, the board issued another decision, LA Specialty Produce, where they sought to clarify certain aspects of Boeing. And then finally, in this year's Stericycle decision, the board essentially returned to its Lutheran Heritage um, standard, which expressly factors employer interests into the board's analysis. So the new standard requires the board to interpret employer rules from the perspective of an employee who is subject to the rule and economically dependent on the employer and who contemplates engaging in protected concerted activity. This position was grounded in the view that employees are in a vulnerable position relative to their employers and that workplace rules should be narrowly tailored to advance a legitimate and substantial business interest. So under the new standard, a rule is considered presumptively lawful and the GC will have met her burden if an employee could reasonably interpret it as having a coercive meaning regardless of the employer's intent. The employer can rebut that presumption by proving that the rule advances a legitimate and substantial business interest and that it is unable to advance that interest using a more narrowly tailored rule. If the employer succeeds in rebutting the presumption, the rule will be found to be lawful. So applying the, the new stericycle standard, the board found that employer rules governing personal conduct, conflicts of interest, and confidentiality of harassment complaints they found that they violated Section 8A1 and remanded the case to the administrative law judge so that the judge could give the parties the opportunity to present evidence in light of the new standard. All right. Thank you, Emily. That was a great explanation. Uh, I think both of these first two issues, they're ones many, the law does often change at the NLRB, but sometimes it's changed so many times that it's very predictable. And th these are two areas where this is maybe the for second or third time it's changed and the standard is still evolving in unpredictable ways. So Alison, I'm gonna start with you. I'm, I'm again kind of putting you in the hot seat as, as the management uh, attorney looking at these things. Um, as Emily stated, the, the first step of the inquiry under Stericycle is really an analysis of the text of the handbook rule or provision in terms of whether employees would reasonably interpret it to prohibit section seven activity. That was, if I'm recalling correctly, to some extent, part of the Boeing standard. So the text has always mattered. Um, but it does seem like this is a change in how these in how the text will be analyzed. Um, what should employers be looking for now under this step in terms of the an employee's reasonable interpretation of these provisions? So I think I. Um, I Jennifer Abruzzo has shared in, in um, at an ABA conference I was recently at on this particular subject that the reasonable tendency piece of it today is supposed to encapsulate um, what a worker who is economically dependent on uh, his or her employer would reasonably understand a rule to be. As a practitioner, I understand that to mean that in every situation, for the most part, a workplace rule will be, you know, deemed susceptible to the further analysis of whether or not it interferes with their Section 7 rights. So I think it heightens the bar for employers, you know, the first hurdle that you'd go over, um, because I think the assumption in that concept that the worker is economically dependent on their employer, the assumption built in there is that a worker would necessarily be um, more likely to be fearful to act out of compliance in a certain way because of the repercussions of losing their job. And if that's the baseline in which the board views all workplace rules, I think you necessarily get to the next hurdle, you know, immediately and have to start defending yourself on to the, you know, as it relates to the legitimate business justification for why you have that rule. Um, so I think that answers your question, Alex, which I think it's just like it, it's harder to sort of get an initial baseline um, assessment that your rule is legitimate without having to offer some additional justification, because in a simple sense, rules, rules are bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that kind of leads to, to an, a follow up question, which is like, I mean, how much should employers be a lot of times in my experience? Um, 
employers have handbooks that are 10 years old. Maybe it depends on the size of the employer. Um, but how much of a need is there really to go back and do a rethink um, on some of these types of provisions? I think it's massively important to advise your clients to reevaluate their handbooks. I Nothing makes me sadder as a practitioner to get a draft handbook from a client that's like 75 pages long because that's just normally can't be good for anyone, both for the employer and the workers, right? It's really hard for management to comply with the different sets of expectations that they're setting out if there's you know too much there. So for me, I think maybe this is a good reminder for us to work with our clients to say, what's actually essential here? Like what what happens at your workplace that you actually need to regulate and communicate to workers and whatever's not essential, get rid of it because it's not helping you and it's not helping them. So I think simplification, that's my takeaway here is like simplification can be king or queen here when it comes to handbooks. And this is a good reminder that even if you mean well, or you're trying to create sort of a sense of order in the workplace, that you're risking legal violations, probably unintentionally, by using an old document that you, you know, perhaps got through some forum or passed on to you, like you're not meaning it to be that way, but that's the effect of it. Um, Paige, I think part of the... the uh... I guess I don't know how much rules come up in your union practice. So they they actually kind of only come in rarely in mine in kind of unusual situations. But um, what are some of the types? Um, as Allison said, employee handbooks can be quite lengthy, and they touch on a number of different subjects. What what tends to be the rules that really can implicate Section Seven activity? I mean, I guess both in terms of what the board. This might be a question for Emily too, both in terms of what the board's actually issuing decisions on, but also in our experience, what actually is used to restrict um, activity, you know, really section seven activity in the workplace. Yeah, I think it runs it, like you, Alex, it doesn't come up a, a ton in my practice, um, but I think it can run the gamut. Like I've had um, cases involving no like rules against photography and uh, video in the workplace. Uh, which can, you know, implicate concerns about surveilling employees who might be engaging in union activity um, or otherwise engaging in Section 7 activity with their coworkers. Um, so that's one that I've seen come up. Um, I know we're probably going to touch on that issue later, but also, you know, confidentiality rules, um, things like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And on the photo and video, um, do you, when you're doing arbitrations for unions, I think this might be a good example to help explain to people. Um, do you ever receive evidence? I guess a lot of times we receive evidence that comes directly or indirectly from rank and file employees in the workplace. And do you ever get evidence in that form? Like a picture somebody took on their phone? Sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I do. And, uh, you know, videos of uh, things that supervisors are doing. Um, and I often, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it comes up definitely in arbitration. Um, and I've had situations where, you know, employees have been disciplined for taking photographs of work of, for example, conditions that they think are unsafe. Um, you know, on the basis that that violates the employer's rule against, um, you know, no photography in the workplace or even not having your cell phone on you while you're working. Um, so that's how I've seen it come up more. Yeah, Allison, I, I mentioned before, I wanted to ask you about disclaimers, because I think these come up both in, in severance and settlement agreements and in employee handbooks, where there's often some type of provision that says, Yes, but er everything um, that has just been described will not apply to Section 7 activity, which is sometimes defined or sometimes not defined. I guess in both of these contexts, um, how can employers use disclaimers to avoid liability and how how effective do they need to be? Like, is it enough just to have a, a sentence in very legalistic terms? Um. 
while this general counsel hasn't commented on it, my best guess is disclaimers are never going to be good enough um, in this current administration. But I think that they're probably not the same in severance agreements as they are in handbooks. Um, I think that disclaimers and severance agreements, not just at the board, but for other types of statutes, like the EEO has direction about disclaimers related to whistleblower activity, and so does the SEC. It feels like um, there it is more likely going to be effective to include a disclaimer about Section 7 activity in a severance agreement. And in fact, in that general counsel memo, there's like a 30-line disclaimer that um, the GC recommends be included in agreements. Um, uh, so I think there's a space for it in severance agreements. In handbooks, I think that there's often two approaches. One is to have a generalized disclaimer, which I think probably would never be good enough. I think there's actually board law that says if you like tack it at the back of the book, don't tie it up with a particular rule that um, a reasonable person would never understand that those two things are connected. Um, I think that as to particular rules that um, are likely to run afoul here, like confidentiality rules or surveillance rules or social media rules, like ones that really protect, potentially touch on Section 7 activity, that it's advisable. I recommend to my clients that we include not just like this doesn't impact your Section 7 rights, but to explain like this doesn't preclude you from talking about your terms and conditions of employment. So you, you know, try to describe to the worker that what's trying to be regulated here is not their section seven activity, but ultimately, am I convinced that that would be good enough? No, not today, maybe someday, but not today. Alex, um, if I could just interject, um, there's a case that I believe is before the board right now, Ralph's grocery stores. I don't have the citation in front of me that I think is looking at among other issues, uh, savings clauses. So there may be some forthcoming guidance on that. I'm sorry, I don't have the citation with me, but just thought I'd mention it. Yeah, Emily, do you know if the the position of the general counsel is that they can be good enough, or I don't I don't know offhand that case, or maybe you don't know. Um, I don't know off the top of my head. That'll be interesting, and sometimes it's very hard to track down those cases uh, where they're at until the decision issues. But that's great to know, um, and I guess. There's so much more we could we could say about rules, but maybe to make sure we have time for our last topic, um, Emily, do I have it right that there is no GC memo um, under Stericycle yet? Is that right? Funny you should ask that because right before this, I was scrambling around trying to make sure that there wasn't one because I couldn't find one. <laughs> <laughs> so if it exists, I was not able to find it. Um, there are many GC uh, memos about rules kind of historically, um, but I haven't seen one yet on Stericycle. There was a um, guidance, I'm trying to remember, it might have been an advice memo when the Stericycle, when Stericycle was still pending um, that set forth the general counsel's position on on the various rules at issue in Stericycle. Um, I honestly can't remember whether that was a public facing memo or not. Yes, and for those who don't know, the, the, Emily's referring to the Division of Advice, which is kind of like the um, the unit in the headquarters office in Washington DC for the agency that kind of develops new um, legal theories and also just handles different difficult legal issues before the general counsel, before they would be litigated. And sometimes it's hard to, from the NLR, from Emily's perspective, she can access all of them, but uh, to outside practitioners, we can only access some of them. So I guess- I think, <laughs> I, I could be mistaken, but I think that one may be public facing. Okay. Um, and if it is, it's a really great um, resource. I'll see if I can find the citation. Excellent. And there, there is also, on, there's a, a website, there's a page for that on the NLRB's website on recently released uh, advice memos. And another one I would commend to people from my time at the board is uh, GC Memo 15-04, um, which it was the report of the general counsel at that time about rules. And it does, it's a pretty helpful guide. It goes kind of topic by topic, disloyalty rules, this different, all the different types of things you might see in a handbook, and I think even savings clauses. Um, so uh, that should be a pretty good resource for people. So now let's turn to the last topic, which is really the board's recent 
um, really massive decision in, known as CEMEX uh, that speaks to an employer's obligations when they're confronted with a union's request for recognition. So Emily, take us away on that one. Oh, you're muted, Emily. I did it again. I, I even wrote a note to myself. Um, I uh, see that we don't have a whole lot of time left, and this is a pretty big topic. And I would say that my answers to many of your questions may be, I don't know, but I will try to lay it because this is brand new law and it really changes a lot of things. So I will try to sketch out for you what I do know and then leave it to the other experts to speculate about what the answers to some of the questions might be. So this issue has to do with a board decision issued on August 25th of this year. The case is Semex Construction Materials Pacific. And CEMEX uh, announced a new framework for determining when employers are required to bargain with unions without a representation election. So under the new framework, when a union requests recognition, which can be verbal or in writing, based on the fact that a majority of, its, of the employees in an appropriate bargaining unit have designated it as their representative, the employer has a choice. They can recognize and bargain with the union or within two weeks of the demand file an RM petition seeking an election in order to test the union's majority support or to challenge the appropriateness of the unit. But if the employer who seeks an election commits an unfair labor practice that would require setting aside the election, the petition will be dismissed under this standard. And rather than rerunning the election, the board would order the employer to recognize and bargain with the union. The board explained in CEMEX that the revised framework was intended to better effectuate employees' right to bargain through their chosen representative, while acknowledging that employers have the option to invoke the statutory provision that allows them to pursue a board election instead of voluntarily recognizing the union. The board reasoned that the new standard would promote a fair election environment by more effectively disincentivizing employers from committing ULPs, unfair labor practices. Um, in CEMEX, the board found that the employer had engaged in more than 20 instances of objectionable or unlawful misconduct during the critical period between the filing of the election of the petition and the election. That misconduct in CEMEX included uh, threats of plant closures, job loss, and other reprisals if employees selected the union. It included surveilling employees and interrogating them about their union activity, prohibiting them from talking with organizer union organizers or displaying pro-union paraphernalia and hiring security guards to intimidate employees right before the election. Um, the CEMEX ALJ also found that before the election, the employer had unlawfully disciplined a lead union activist for talking with organizers on company time, as opposed to work time, which if we had more time, we could talk about that distinction. Um, and that after the election, the employer unlawfully suspended and then disciplined the same employee because of her union activity. Finally, the ALJ found in CEMEX that the employer had engaged in objectionable conduct that affected the conduct of the election. So the board upheld many of the ALJ's findings and agreed that the employer's conduct warranted setting aside the election. But contrary to the ALJ, the administrative law judge, the board found that the employer was subject to a bargaining order, both under the Supreme Court's decision in NLRB v. Gissel packing and under the newly announced standard and that it applied retroactively. So to a large extent, this is uncharted territory. The decision just came down in late August and, um, and there are cases that are just starting to show up in the pipeline. Um, but multiple possible uh, scenarios are contemplated. So I just thought I'd go over a couple of those. One is that employees or the union request voluntary recognition based on having achieved majority status and the employer recognizes and starts to bargain in good faith with the union. And that's essentially the end of that story. Um, the second possible scenario is that employees or the union request voluntary rec recognition and they file an RFC petition or the employer files an RM petition within two weeks of the demand. In that scenario, if the employer commits unfair labor practices, the board may issue a CEMEX bargaining order. The third scenario is one in which employer employees or the union request voluntary recognition and the union files an RC petition or the employer files an RM petition within two weeks 
If the employer doesn't commit any unfair labor practices, an election is held and in a free and fair environment. And the fourth scenario is one in which employees or the union request voluntary recognition and the employer decides not to recognize the union and doesn't file an RM petition. So if the board in that scenario finds that the employer committed unfair labor practices, it can issue a CEMEX bargaining order. So the general counsel issued an, uh, a guidance in response to inquiries about this CEMEX decision. It's GC 2401. It's dated November 2nd, 2023. I mean, sorry, 2023. And I urge you all to look at it. Um, it makes clear, and I'm going to just touch on a couple of key points, but it, um, I'm not touching on everything in this very helpful guidance. Uh, it makes clear that CEMEX applies retroactively. It opines that a Gissel bargaining order may still be an appropriate remedy in cases where a union's demand for recognition is at issue and the employer's unfair labor practices caused a loss of majority support. For example, when there either was no demand for recognition or a demand for recognition that in some way was inadequate, um, but there was majority status, an RC petition, and unfair labor practices that would tend to interfere with an election. Um, the guidance makes clear that a union may file an 85 charge against an employer where the employer does not recognize the union upon demand, doesn't file an RM petition within two weeks, and there's no other petition for a board-conducted election being processed by the region. Uh, the guidance makes clear that a, the SAMEX board advised that its new standard would likely result in finding an unlawful refusal to recognize and bargain based on fewer and less serious violations, but it notes that the standards governing, governing those violations have not changed and that violations that are so minimal or isolated that it's virtually impossible to conclude that, that the misconduct could have affected the election results would generally not serve as a basis for setting aside election. And finally, the GC memo makes clear that the board will consider all relevant factors, including the number of violations, their severity, the extent of dissemination, the size of the bargaining unit, the closeness of the election, if one is held, the proximity of the misconduct to the election date, and the number of employees affected. All right. Thank you, Emily. I think just to make sure, maybe just to summarize that really quickly, it sounds like there's two ways an employers could run afoul of the standard. One would be within a reasonable period, which is typically two weeks from a demand for recognition, they fail to file a petition um, and no petition is filed. And then there's just a violation. And then the second category would be where um, the employer commits separate unfair labor practices that would be sufficient to merit um, overturning an election if an election happened. Is that right? Yes. This is, this is very complicated. And this is, I guess, again, like what I said for the first two, this is a complete, really completely novel standard, uh, which surprisingly, um, the general counsel had actually urged something different, which was a return to what's called the Joy Silk standard. So this is very new, um, <laughs> very different. Let's focus maybe on the first um, way an employer, the, the employer's response to the demand for recognition. Um, Allison, it, it's, it, this is a very compressed time frame now that employers are dealing with, with the two weeks to respond. Um, when they get, and union, employers don't always know, and actually our clients often like to make sure that they don't, the employer doesn't necessarily find out before we make a demand for recognition. Um, what should employers be looking at when they get that demand for recognition and they know the clock is running and they have two weeks to respond? Well, I think that the swiftness of all of this makes it, you know, essential that counsel get with clients to talk about this change in the law, because I think for decades, it has been the case that if there's been a demand for recognition, that an employer could elect to have an election instead. And so there wasn't a sort of default violation for not acknowledging that demand for recognition. And in my experience, it's often the case that frontline management are the ones who receive these demands for recognition Obviously, workers are going to go directly to their supervisors, but that necessarily is not necessarily the audience of people who would know what to do with a piece of paper like that. Right. So 
Um, it's sort of essential for counsel to get with clients to talk about the consequences of it and to also counsel them about being careful about it. Like management needs to make a decision about how they want to proceed and when they want to proceed. And that immediate interaction between the workers and the supervisor and handing over that demand for recognition is meaningful. Um, And so I, I think it's training on the front end with frontline supervisors about this change in law and the consequences of it so that people can make a thoughtful decision about how they want to proceed because this it seems very easy to unintentionally find yourself in a bargaining order situation because you weren't aware of the new rules in the short time there is to act. Um, Paige, could you, now that kind of like there's been more, there's more emphasis on the request for recognition Uh, Sometimes, at least for the unions that I work with, it's almost a formality that we in the past had expected to be swiftly rejected uh, because it wasn't required. But could you explain for people watching this just really what it means for an employer to recognize without going through an election, a union based on their majority support? um, And like what happens next after that with bargaining and everything? Yeah, sure. Um, So I've had the same experience, Alex. It's sort of pro forma. You make the demand and say, you know, if we don't hear from you by X date, we're proceeding um, to file a petition for a union election. Um, And often that was either, you know, uh, rejected or ignored. Um, So we were nine out of 10 times um, facing an election and the election process anyway. Um, You know, there were there were the exceptions, Uh, maybe smaller employers, uh, I would say, might be more open um, to to voluntarily recognizing the union. Um, When an employer does what it means is you're you know, they've at at that point uh, agreed to uh, that the union is the certified representative of whatever bargaining unit of of employees um, and they are under duty to bargain with the union over a first contract and the terms and conditions of employment. you know, I it can it can go different ways. You know, the employer can just say yes. You know, we voluntarily recognize the union. Uh, they could uh, take uh, go one step short of that and say we'll agree to a card check to you can prove that you um, that you actually have majority support before a neutral, like an arbitrator, um, who will review cards and and issue a certification or not um, based on the cards, and then you know. There's a process um, under the board's rules where you have to notify the board of voluntary recognition. There has to be a notice posting that goes up and is distributed um, and essentially creates like an open period uh, for 45 days in which um, a decertification petition, for example, could be filed. Um, I mean, any petition really, but that would probably be the one that uh, I would expect um, unless there's some rival union who wants to make its claim. Um, And, you know, once that 45 day period passes, then Um, you have what's called a recognition bar in effect, um, which would prevent the processing processing of any other um, any other petitions. Right. So that's sort of how the ball gets rolling once an employer voluntarily recognizes a union. And I think just so people understand is that once that recognition happens, is it the same? Does the employer have the same legal bargaining obligations that they would based on a board certification? Yes. So it looks like we only have one minute to go. So, Allison, I guess I'll leave you the last question, which would be this standard under the, I guess, what I would call the second route by which an employer could violate the standard, which would be committing an independent unfair labor practice after the, or maybe before, but then let's just say committing an independent unfair labor practice. Um. How different is that from the standard before and how does that change? I know employers always take compliance seriously in in election campaigns, but how does it um, how does it really change that calculus? Because it is a very different standard from the Gissel packing standard. Um, It's such a complicated question. It's such a short time. I'd say if I was going to answer it sort of very briefly, it it feels as if the assessment now is 
you know, what happens at or around the time of the election is being treated differently under today's standard than it is under Gissel, which Gissel, in my view, takes into account the facts and circumstances around the capacity to have a rerun election um, at the time that the board's actually treating the case and deciding if a rerun would be fair. And that seems not to be relevant evidence anymore. Now it is simply a look back at the election period and making an assessment about if at the time there was an unfair labor practice, even just one, like a poorly written handbook policy, that that might be enough to issue a a bargaining order, which is such an extreme remedy. And that's sort of a terribly short answer for a complicated issue, but sort of the time period matters and the severity of the violation matters um, pretty significantly now under this new standard. so I'll leave it there. All right. Um, well, we've gone through our three topics. There's many more, especially on the the latter two. I think we could you probably have a whole hour about those. Um, but does anybody watching have some clue? Have any questions from the audience? Actually, 